Hello, Alaska. This is Pat Race. And this is Matt Buxton. And this is a podcast. Let me do that again. Matt Buxton. (laughs) No, we're using it. (laughs) This is a podcast about Alaska. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, we're we're into our first week of legislative session. How are you holding up? Pretty good so far. Uh, You know, I, I think... It's always more work than I expected, and I've been doing this for like 12 years now. Mm-hmm. But also, I kind of like the rhythm of you know the daily meeting of sessions and agendas and that kind of structure. I just like structure, so I like session uh, being back. It's really interesting. I think you know the big news of this week, right, is that we were really bracing for another multi-week, maybe month-long fight over the House majority arrangement. We talked about this last week. You know, the, the chamber was pretty evenly split and really wasn't like a whole lot of clear direction about how it might go. Um, yeah. But on the second day of session, they have elected Re- House Speaker uh, Kathy Tilton. She's a Republican from Wasilla who has been, I think she's one of the very few legislators, one of the very few Republicans who's ever been in a majority at all. And that was the tail end of the one that ended in 2017 when we saw the rise of the bipartisan coalition in the House. And so there's been a ton of like turnover since then. And she's one of the few with a couple returning Republicans who've had any experience in the majority. Um, mm-hmm. The deal that kind of came together was between the 19 Republicans which would be minus David Eastman, which I think is really, that's a whole interesting wrinkle there. And then four yeah. of four uh, rural legislators who kind of are known as the Bush caucus, which is, you know, admittedly a term that I think a lot of people in different areas have ownership over, or at least, you know, there's a, there's a, there's a definitely a debate about what, who is in the Bush caucus. Who is who isn't. Isn't. But yeah. this is, uh, this would be um, representative Josiah Puckatuck from uh, um representative Neil Foster from Nome. Uh, C.J. McCormick, a freshman representative from Bethel, and um, Bryce Edgman, independent from Dillingham, who is our former speaker of the la- two of the last three bipartisan coalitions. So mm-hmm. that's where we're at. It's a 23-member majority, and we don't really know a whole lot else about it at this point still. We're still a couple days in. Did you know anything about the deals that were made to to form the majority? Or is that sort of something that you don't get to know? It We don't really get to know, um, you know, exactly what the deals are. Because I would assume that, um, you know, the issues that are important to these four legislators, you know, power cost equalization um, being one of them. There's several other programs, you know, rural infrastructure um, are, are big priorities. So I would imagine that those are, are things that are, are in there. But, you know, what we can only really see right now is their public comments and what we can see, also, obviously, the committee assignments, right? So yeah. we are getting the trio of finance co-chairs who are kind of really like the orc, you know, the conductors of the orchestra in a way or the gatekeepers or whatever you want to, whatever kind of metaphor you want to use. You know, they're kind of in charge of the House Finance Committee. So it's it's Foster and Edgman who are make up two of it. And then um, Representative Delana Johnson, um, Republican from Palmer, who will be the budget person, you know, the operating budget person. And then uh, Foster and Edgman will handle some combination of the capital budget and running the bills. So, uh, so a lot of power, I think, kind of right there. The other thing, the other kind of indication I, w- I would take here, too, 
is that you know two committees that were created under the bipartisan coalition that um, that need to be renewed. Every single special committee needs to be renewed, um, and so you know there was certainly an option that they wouldn't renew them. Those would be the House Ways and Means Committee, which was created this last session under House Speaker Stutz, and the House Special Committee on Tribal Affairs which was created under Edgman and which was really, you know, an important, very clearly important personal, personally important to him to have, you know, as a committee that would really focus on tribal issues. I think kind of understanding and elevating the, the understanding that, you know, tribes are, you know, we have a government to government relation with, with relationship with tribes. The, the tribes are major, you know, the tribal corporations are major, Alaska Native corporations are major parts of the economy, all these other issues. And, in that time, you know, there have been Republicans who've been on that committee who've like came away really positive, who said basically, "Look, I had all these sort of preconceived notions, and they've really changed my mind." And it's you that know, was Sarah Vance, right? Sarah Vance, it, who yeah, like for for you know, she's a you know, she often gets brush you know painted with the Eastman brush, mm-hmm. but to her credit, you know, I think I remember watching a few of the hearings where you know she listened to it and goes, "Oh my God." I had no idea, you know, like, I'm so sorry, you know, I think she like personally apologized to people on that committee for like, just how she had acted and all that sort of stuff in the past. And I think that's like a really, you know, we want to see, I think minds change, I, I would, you know, obviously, we'd all hope that everybody comes from to, into these issues into the legislature with broad, empathetic knowledge of the many issues in our state. But if you're gonna at least learn on the job, you know, at least learn on the job, right? Yeah. I mean, so, if, you, if you join the legislature, there's going to be some area of expertise you lack. There's so much information flowing through, and it's important to, to know, you know, come into the job knowing you're going to learn something yeah. and being open to learning something and not being all, like, closed off. And it's it's great to see when, when the legislator goes through that process and, like, picks up some new knowledge and actually, you know, like, takes that to heart. Yeah. And so, like, credit to everybody involved in that for keeping that around. I, I don't know if... Um, you know, that's a deal that they made there. But I think that his, you know, that those four legislators involvement, you know, along with you know, the track record, really, this committee has been around for several years. It's, it's, you know, made a difference. I think it's opened eyes. It's been able to serve as a, a, a way to highlight and focus on issues and legislation important to tribes. And th- when they bring this vote up on the House floor, Every, every other committee's, you know, done without any debate, no pushback. And, of course, on this one, you know, Representative David Eastman, a minority of one, you know, gets up and complains that this isn't needed, that, you know, it's kind of, it's excluding people somehow, and all this sort of stuff. And I think that this kind of is going to be a recurring theme as we move forward, is that... That he's going to continue to annoy everyone. Yeah, well, that's true, that too. I think there's a continue to annoy everybody, but I think that, like, as long as they can kind of can help, as long as they can control themselves and not find themselves, like, agreeing with David Eastman a whole bunch, I think by comparison, they'll look a little bit more, like, normal. Maybe not, like, even moderate, but just, like, not actively bigoted, I think. And I think that's, like, an improvement for some of those legislators, if we're being honest, because over the last, you know, several years in the minority, I think that you've seen a lot of Republicans, like, kind of instinctually sort of like, you know, circle the wagons around Eastman because he's a Republican. And there's kind of, there's a little bit of like a, now that they're in the majority, 
and they don't really need him as much. Yeah. Especially because they have these four other members that have joined them, they can kind of tell him to get lost. Um, which, though, to be all to be clear, though, they really haven't totally told him to get lost because he's got a seat on the House Judiciary Committee, which is really the whole other kind of side of this organizing coin. So tell me a little bit about, like, from where you're sitting, do you feel like this is a stable organization? Is this is this what our next two years looks like, or um, or, is, or are there fraught elements here? I mean, I think there are fraught elements here. I think that it, it's going to be really interesting for all these members to be moving from a minority where they basically have been telling themselves over the last six years that we are right, we have the right ideas, they're just you know holding us down because of politics or whatever. And now that they're in the position of having to govern, I think it becomes a lot more difficult because you know when you're united in opposition to what you are labeling like the dirty Democrats agenda, it's a lot easier to be you know you united 19 or 18 no votes on it. Maybe they'll unite in uh, in opposition to the Senate. <laughs> yeah, maybe. Um, so that I mean that's a whole other really interesting element is the Senate. But you know I think really the the last couple of years in the Senate is probably a really good way to think about how the House is going to move forward. That sort of caucus of equals era of inner turmoil. Yeah. So you're going to have you know truly a handful of truly moderate legislators with kind of your traditional Republican, businessy Republicans with about 10, 8 to 10 hardcore right-wing believers. And, you know, whether or not they can get to a point where they're passing a budget, for example, is going to be, I think it's going to be tough. In the Senate, you know, we saw several legislators, several Republicans split off from the budget. They didn't like it that the dividend um, wasn't as big as it as they wanted, they wanted more cuts. But then the the moderate kind of businessy Republicans who like, you know, they at the end of the day they like a lot of this government spending. Turned around and said, "Fine, we'll just work with the Democrats. We'll just we'll just find a, we'll just get the budget done that way and kind of lock them out of the process." And it's interesting to kind of listen to some of the um, news conference stuff where they've kind of hinted at this. Really, I mean, they've talked about you know they've said like we're not a binding caucus which is a whole issue among republicans this is this idea that you know by becoming a member of the majority and, and getting the benefits of being in a majority which is having you know, more staff more better committee assignments etc cetera, etc cetera, you have to vote for the budget yeah and republicans don't like that so they kind of they said that they don't really have one but they do in the sense that they're expecting people to negotiate along the way yeah and if they and if they don't like the way the negotiations go, they're not expected to vote against it because they had their opportunity to negotiate with it, which is really which is what the oh, system was before. Which is really yeah. yeah. So I mean, so, so they didn't, we don't they didn't we, say have, we have no binding caucus uh, as long as everyone agrees with us. Yeah, I mean, basically, and so I think that you know the big element of this, of course, is that the bipartisan majority it wasn't like extraordinarily liberal right you know the the especially when you look at the budget the budget was kind of driven yeah. in large part by these kind of um you know moderate republicans right who came over and but what had happened though is that by kind of letting them lead you know having them kind of get their way on, on some of these budget priorities you know democrats got to hold on to committee chairs like all up and down and so that's I think going to be the really big change that we'll see play out. I mean, we've and the thing is though is that I, I kind of like um, 
bristle at a little bit is this like end of the world idea that we've sort of seen from some people that like the legislature is going to be you know rampantly more conservative and everything and have you seen that i haven't been yeah, I haven't a little seen bit. that i you know what i think's happening is i think that uh, uh what i noticed is a lot of anchorage and a lot of anchorage legislators are, are left out of the majority and so i think you're in anchorage and i think you're hearing a lot of sort of like doom and gloom about it but yeah. Where I am, I know. I think that's where totally I am. It. I'm not yeah. hearing quite it, the same tone. Like, I, I mean, everyone's kind of bummed that it's not the bipartisan majority, but it's not sort of the end of the world. Uh, the dialogue I think that you're hearing. Yeah, I mean, I think that is what has been kind of so interesting to me. And, I, and to me, what I really don't like about it too is that it like pins a lot of blame on these four uh, rural legislators that came over that. It's their fault that... Uh, that Alaskans voted for Republicans? Yeah. But, I mean, like, I think that the thing that we need to understand here is that going into the election, like, prior to all the results, like, the odds were heavily in Republicans' favor for taking over the chamber. And that was really be- in large part because, like, a lot of the moderate-ish Republicans were, were leaving, either going to the Senate or, or retiring. So there just wasn't as many... Yeah. like moderate Republicans to come over. And so a lot of them were being replaced by more, you know, ideologically certain Republicans. So instead of having, you know, a labor-friendly Republican like Kelly Merrick in the House, you have Jamie Allard in the House. So it was always going to be tough. I think the elections went better for independents, really. It's kind of, if you really look at it, the biggest sort of pickup is that we now have like six independents in the House. Uh, so there's a, a bunch of independents now, and and it just never really the numbers never really made a lot of sense when you have a, a very ideologically firm at the very least they're ideologically uh, aligned on Republicans sticking together for the most part. They have R's and, next to their name, right? And then you have I think a, a large group of independents now who I think aren't were never super aligned with the bipartisan coalition if it meant that they could go over and get a majority with the Republicans. And I think, so there's a kind of, it was really, I think the more I've heard about it, you know, there was sort of a push for bringing a few Demo- few Republicans over to the bipartisan coalition, forming a larger coalition. But the real talk that it always had seemed like that had the most sort of traction behind it was always, you know, a mostly Republican caucus with either you know, coastal independence from kind of south central and southeast or the rural independents and Democrats from, you know, the West Coast and, and uh, north. And yeah. so, uh, you know, I think that's how it ended up. And so, but the, you know, it's, it's funny. The, the like, Senate, it, it, oh, yeah. Uh, I was going to say it's it's funny. Like when I look at this, you know, I, I just sort of was like, well, yeah, I mean, oil companies still have a lot of power in Alaska and this house coalition is going to do whatever they want. And I mean, they're right. Right. I mean, like we, we're the Vico state. We have, uh, it's, it's not a surprise that we don't have a, uh, Democrat led bipartisan coalition in the house. Yeah. I mean, I think that's actually exactly right. Because, you know, the more I think about it too, is that the, the few times, the few things that I think that these Republicans, a lot of you know, a lot of the conservative legislators yeah. are all what, what really them? united. Yeah, oil stuff. That's the thing that you never you hear, 
even like Eastman or or Sarah Vance or you know these what you think of as these really far right, really extreme legislators with kind of extreme views, is they all still believe in low uh, low oil taxes. You know, they all kind of seem to have a, a pretty firm like belief about the oil tax economy or oil taxes being low and, and the job creation, all that kind of stuff. They're all pretty you know unified on that sort of thinking. So that I think that's a good point. Yeah, to keep I, in mind there. Yeah, I think that that's the unifying thread that I'm seeing is that like this is a a pro resource development coalition. Yeah, and I think it's going to be interesting because right we have you know it would be very different if this was a different Senate right now right if you had an all Republican Senate that was you know very conservative and united in those principles or even the last year's you know one where it was divided at least but they could kind of stumble along to the end line. This Senate majority is bipartisan, you know, and I think they are kind of in some ways like a better representation of it in that it's really broad, right? It's, there's no one member of this majority that can kind of try to influence their will over the whole thing. They kind of have the seven, you know, 17 it's, member It's majority. almost the entire Senate. I mean, that's the yeah, best. Really that's is. what I yeah. love about it. It's like, okay, we just, there's three people that we're not interested in working with and the rest of us are the Senate. Yeah. And it ends up, too, with, you know, I think one of the really interesting things this year is going to be, you know, you have a Senate Education Committee chaired by uh, Senator Tobin out of uh, Anchorage. You know, that's going to be a big, big change from uh, Education Committee chaired by Senator Shelley Hughes out of Palmer. Right. right? I mean, I think think those things are going to be massively different. Yeah. And I think I think the power of those chairmanships is, you know, to, to sort of direct conversations and line up speakers and and sort of put, you know, stifle bills or put them on or, or usher them through, like that's really important in the legislature. And, you know, that's where the this House uh, majority is going to have its biggest impact, I think, is, is yeah. that we're going to see a lot of weird committee stuff happen this year. You know, you're going to have yes. some very strange like, oh, well, that's a that's a rodeo of a committee. Um, I'd be yeah. curious from you, I mean, like right now looking at committee assignments, and I know they may change a little bit. Um, but uh, what committees are you thinking right now could be potentially like volatile in the House? I mean, the House Judiciary Committee. It's chaired by Sarah Vance. Eastman's on it. A bunch of other conservative people are, are on it. I think you'd have a lot of work cut out for you on that committee. Education is going to be tough, too, I think. Um, that one's chaired by Jamie Allard. And I think that like it's going to be interesting at the very least, right? And I think that... You know, if, if it was a completely united legislature and governor, I would be a little more, you know, concerned about how it's going to work right now. But because it's sort of still divided and because I think there's these sort of internal divisions that will that will make it difficult to do to get whatever like weird far right agenda they have done. You know, at least there's like to me, it's not like the end of the world, I guess <laughs> I'm coming from. I'm still, and I just like, yeah, I, I feel like becoming mortal enemies over how this all worked out is is just a little too much for me. So you're you're saying we shouldn't ruin our relationships with the four members of the Bush Caucus over their decision to to um, yeah. join this coalition? Yeah, yeah. They make the majority too, instead of they make the um, two thirds majority. Yeah, it didn't feel like a coup to me. It felt like just sort of the way. It, the way it was going to work and yeah and honestly it's a little bit of a relief to have some organization uh to build from 
you brought up the spending cap, which I, <laughs> I wrote a, I wrote an op-ed uh, was really good. last week. Oh, well, thanks. I, uh, but basically it's like, there, there, first of all, there's, I didn't get into this in the op-ed, but there's a difference between spending and appropriation. And that's an important difference, right? Like spending the money is different than appropriating the money. And we have an appropriations cap uh, in our constitution already. And it's useless because our population, the way our population has grown and the way our budget has changed over the years, the cap is so high now that it's essentially ineffective. Like we can't, we're not going to hit the cap. And the thing I've seen over and over again is that you can't just guess at what the, like what's a good spending cap for 10 years down the road is a really hard thing to get at because government and especially our government is is not consistent it's volatile alaska has one of the most volatile revenue streams of anyone and i think because of that one of the more volatile you know spending habits but yeah you can set a cap and it's going to either be too high or it's going to be too low and it's you know our, our spending cap is the legislature our spending cap is the governor our spending cap is is the people that we elect and to to if we put a cap in that's too low, that's going to really hurt us. And we're seeing that right now in Texas. The governor in Texas is a conservative, and he's uh, he wants to do a a tax abatement. He wants to basically give people property tax relief, and he can't pay that money out because of their spending cap. So he can either break the spending cap, or he cannot do this tax abatement. But you know, you you don't want to tie the hands of future decision makers with these with this like arbitrary cap on appropriations or spending because it doesn't it just doesn't make any sense because you don't know what they know because it's in the future right and the future is hard to guess well and i think it's interesting the other point that you brought up in there is about you know treating it like a business right like you gotta sure. spend money there's a lot of like focus right now on you know, school spending, childcare, you know, efforts, you know, workforce recruitment and retention. And those are all issues that aren't going to get fixed without money, basically, right? Like, they're all things that you, the real, like, ultimate answer isn't to cut taxes or anything like that. It's like, you know, you got to make an investment on these, on these various areas to, if you want more of whatever it is. And I mean, really, like, it's not so much about, like, fiscal stability. It's about, keeping this little shrunken government that they've been fighting to shrink small forever, right? Like yeah. trying to instill some sort of artificial growth limits on it moving forward. Yeah. One of the things I ran across this week was this article by Ed King. I should probably first put a little caveat because it's a small state and I feel like <laughs> be careful about like the people you raise up, right? So Ed King was the the chief economist for Don Ardwin when they built out the like terrible terrible no good very bad day budget in 2019 i'm not a huge fan but this article is a really good one and he writes about the permanent fund and the dividend and this question of like do alaskans really get paid to live there and in this article he's he put in in kind of in terms that i really appreciated with one section that really frames up one of the problems with the way our government functions here in alaska and, and it's tied into, uh, you know, we're right now we're on something like year 43 of our, of our tax holiday. We have no income tax in Alaska. We do not pay taxes on our income. People who come here and harvest our resources and, and have, you know, earn income from that do not pay uh, personal income tax from the, the wages they earn. And what happens, he, he writes, that means Alaskans 
don't have to pay taxes for education, road maintenance, police protection, etc. The displaced taxes that we don't pay are a direct benefit to anyone that would otherwise be paying them. That's a big deal. It means that the benefits from our oil don't actually fall evenly across the population. Lower income residents, who would have a very small tax burden, only get the PFD. Higher income residents get the PFD and they get the added benefit of avoiding taxes. Imagine a 5% tax on someone making $1 million per year. Avoiding that tax is a $50,000 per year benefit to them. And I, th I think like that putting it in that very simple terms of tax avoidance is a huge value to rich people or to, to you know, wage earners in general. You know, it, it's something that I, I feel like we all kind of like know and have heard before, but it really makes this PFD versus taxes versus like, how do we pay for the government? You know, like we have this oil wealth and the oil wealth we have pays for the government and we get some benefit from that. But if, if the oil wealth is displacing an income tax, that's a different individual benefit. Yeah. I mean, I think that's kind of, it really does sort of hit the nail on the head, I think, for what our political dialogue on the PFD has been over the last couple of years. And I think it's like, you know, it's hard to overlook the fact that when we talk about the Senate or the House bipartisan coalition or the Senate over the last six years or whatever, is that it's sort of been run by, you know, these sort of wealthy kind of moderate Republicans who kind of like school services. They like not paying taxes and they don't really like the dividend or the dividend's not an important piece of that puzzle for them. And so I think it, it really helps sort of frame some of those discussions really clearly and understand who's benefiting from it. And I guess, you know, this is something that Mr. Brad Keeley has been talking about forever. Right. He, he, he likes to frame that as, and he's another economist and he likes to frame that as a flat, basically like a flat tax across the board is that you're charging when you cut the dividend a thousand dollars, you're taxing everyone a thousand dollars. And mm -hmm. some of this comes from like, how do you view the dividend? Is the dividend a trust? Are we all beneficiaries of a trust fund? And like spending on government is displacing an income tax. That's kind of the element of this is that feels like sort of an aha moment to me is that we, in, in deciding to get rid of our income tax, we're making a huge gift to people who would be paying the income tax. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So anyways, that's something I need to, think about and chew on a little bit but but it's um for some reason this f felt like it sort of unlocked something in my brain that was log jammed yeah i mean i think it, it's it's tough right because it you know it, we we don't really get to ever discuss the full picture with it it feels like it feels like it ends up being a little bit of everybody's got to get some give something or um you know or, or or taxes are you know that's the thing too is that you know the the our closest ally you know the progressive movement's closest allies on this would be some of these populist republicans right who are arguing for large dividends yeah but their answer instead of uh raising new revenue to pay for our services is to oh let's cut the services then we keep our no taxes and we keep our five thousand or our, our dividend payments and right we these started to like put the picture the pieces together last year we had that like working group that pretty promptly got ignored but the the real takeaway from it was that if you want to get something you do need some new revenue somewhere in this picture and then as soon as the question of what that new revenue would become the whole thing fell apart right they said basically the the dividend they want the, their big dividend first and then everything else yeah and one of the big hang-ups is that people can't imagine 
paying income taxes and paying a dividend. Um, yeah. You know, either it's like, oh, that's too much bureaucracy, which like, whatever. I, I like some of the the proposals that tied the income tax and the PFD together, where basically it would automatically deduct. Right. Yeah, I love it. the so idea. So you would have the kind of ratcheting size of dividend depending on your income level. And, right. Yeah, it's almost like a tax credit, right? So it becomes yeah. part of the so Department of Revenue. Uh, when you pay your income tax for Alaska, they you have your three thousand dollar or whatever PFD credit, and if you're above, if you're paying four thousand dollars in taxes, great. Now you're only paying one thousand. If you're paying two thousand dollars in taxes, great. Here's a thousand dollars back, and like, mm-hmm. and so you can like tie it all in together. And then the folks that really don't like that are the ones that are going to stand up and, and yell that that's wealth redistribution and that. That we're yeah. then we're taking money from the rich to give to the poor, which I don't know. I watched a cartoon about that when I was a kid, and it seemed like a good idea. I don't know. <laughs> uh, anyways, I did go down to the building, and it was just like it was for very first day of school vibes. Like everyone had their new track, trapper keeper, and and had, you know like fancy new school clothes and. Uh, they were all swapping offices because the majority had just formed. And so all the computer guys are running around like lugging computers down the hallway, trying to uh, set up different people's spots and all the, the names were wrong on all the boards. And it was just kind of that, like, I don't know, it was sort of a fun, uh, lighthearted chaos. Um, and uh, that I think is usually there at the beginning of session of people are excited to see each other and the drama isn't knee deep quite yet. But yeah, that's kind of where we're at. Yeah, I think the really interesting thing for me is is the the agenda that the Senate is starting to stake out. There's a lot of kind of wishy-washy language in it. So it's like they want to inc- look at increasing school funding with the BSA increase, but there's strings attached, right? They've talked about, um, you know, look. The, I think the really big thing is they've talked about uh, addressing the state's you know, employee mm-hmm. retention and retirement system, specifically looking at returning to a, some sort of defined benefits program for state employees, uh, which is a big deal because, you know, they don't have Social Security right now. So they end up with basically a 401k system um, that, you know, we've heard sort of time and time again has been a really big impact on like recruitment and retention. So when we talk about uh, school teacher shortages, we talk about uh, public safety officers, firefighters, all that sort of stuff, even, you know, every single employee where we talk about not having enough of them is a large part due to be like, because they're all taken off. Right. And they're going to either looking at the cuts and looking at the sort of the state of things or looking at the long-term element of, you know, I don't have any long-term reason to stay here. You know, the setup as a 401k system where at five years I can just kind of take it and go anywhere, anywhere else. So, you know, just what that, eventually means you know i'm i'm wary that it you know we're really going to see a defined benefit program by the end of this year um but at least you know i think it 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 starts the ball rolling in that direction i think there's you know they sort of signaled that you know maybe they they return to it but maybe it's not as generous in you know retirement health care benefits um because i think that's the thing that's sort of difficult for some of these legislators to understand is that they look at it and they go Oh, the old benefit systems where we're trying to re- recruit people to Alaska were way too generous, and everyone's like, "Yeah, okay," but like, no one's really asking for a return to the old system. They were asking for a return to a def- some kind of defined benefit system that makes it so you don't need to be worried about your long-term retirement plans. And so, 
Uh, I think that's going to be interesting. I think that you know, I think that the the election of the House majority kind of put a damper on that. If I'm being sure. honest, I think that's yeah. something that they're going to have an issue with. But you know, maybe there are other areas of of employee recruitment and retention that they can get on board with. I'm not exactly sure what that would be, but they'll probably just do the troopers and the firemen or something like that. Yeah, I think so. Like I that think... feels like the conservative move is like yeah. we would love to have state employees. Uh, work for the state in these specific areas. Yes. And so they'll do the cops and firefighters first, and then maybe a couple of years from then, then they'll do the teachers. Yeah. Um. All right. Well, uh, any, what are we looking for? What are we looking forward to next week? What do you, is there any meeting or, or well, we got um, the state of the state. Yeah. That's Monday, right? Uh, I believe so. Yeah. There's yeah. an education rally right beforehand. I get to give a 60 second speech. Oh, there you go. Hey, basically will be like my sister wants to come here let her <laughs> yeah i mean i think it's going to be interesting you know they, there's all this talk about this carbon banking thing oh my god yeah but i think Dunleavy it's like really high ba- in the sky and he's basically said we just want to take advantage of people who think this is important and i don't but i'll take their money right i don't think it's like a great sales pitch so far and i don't think like you can actually bank on people giving alaska a billion dollars quite yet so for doing what we're already doing i guess i don't want to be too negative about it because i do like that dunleavy's come come far enough that he's talking about this as a policy like it's you know he's talking about an, an environmental policy in a proactive like he's taking the lead on it and yeah that's a big jump from where we were when he first came in the door. You know, like this would have been, he would have looked pretty far down his nose at something like this. I Um, mean, his last major revenue proposal was legalized gambling. So I think he's come a ways. So we'll see. Yeah. And, and with, you know, with carbon credits, like even greenwashing aside, right. Creating a, creating a system where we're conscious of carbon consumption and, trying to create a financial viscosity to carbon consumption so that people producing less carbon have to spend less money. Like that's, that's kind of the direction we need to be going. So mm-hmm. I, it's, it, I'll take it as kind of a step in the right direction. Look at you. Incrementalism. Look at you. <laughs> I know. But yeah, anyways, uh, I think that's, I think that's all I got to talk about today. I don't really, I went to the legislative reception in Juneau. It was, it was nice to see people. I've uh, been ghosting around the building. I uh, saw some folks out. It was, uh, I got to see a couple people out playing pool and uh, some uh, just, you know, legislators are in town. It's happening. There's a lot, I met some new staffers and they're great. I had pancakes with Representative Mina. That was that was nice. Yeah, I've known her for a couple of years now. I really always yeah. really liked her. I think she's really mm-hmm. thoughtful, and I think that she's one of the people I'm excited to see how they'll do here with this kind of stage. And I think that's like, again, going back to you know when we talk about you know the ah dang nature of having you know for having progressives and Democrats move into a minority in the in the House is that I think at the very least you can make some pretty fiery speeches and make some people pretty uncomfortable from the minority. And, you know, I think you look back at uh, rep- like people like Representative Lesguera, you know, people, Republicans hated him. And he had, you know, he had very little. Like, is that something to aspire to? <laughs> no, but I think that, you know, I think that he was effective in, in talking about, you know, these issues in a way that I think the Republicans had to, like, 
was they undeniable in ways. Yeah. And I think they, they had to either deal with it or they had to like kind of push along while someone was yelling the emperor had no clothes on. Like, mm-hmm. And I think that there's like kind of an opportunity here with that. I think you can be a little more uh, kind of fiery in your um, advocate, in being able to advocate for issues that you care about. And especially when you're not like trying to not, you know, you can't shake the boat because you only got 21 members. When you're 16 or 17 members, you can shake the boat all you want. It's not your job to keep it afloat. And so I think it's really interesting going to be moving forward. I think that, you know, I I would like to see some people be, you know, I think I I just always like it when you can hear people be really good advocates for these sort of policies. I think that that is sort of one of the big major problems we have right now in politics, especially if you're looking at like progressive positions, is that I think they're people have difficulty advocating for why you should care about some of these issues. And I think people like Representative Mina, several others are are really good at being able to, you know, sort of decode these issues and also like kind of take the partisan partisanship out of them. I think that all of a sudden doesn't become about you should do this because it's the democratic thing to do. You're doing this because it's the thing that matters to working class families and and people that need opportunity. I think some of those things are, are kind of exciting for me. And so, We'll yeah. see how I, I am excited about all these new voices, you know, like yeah. I, I feel like you hear new things from new voices. People say things in new ways and and it it breaks through the the kind of the rumble. You know, if you've right. you know, Les Guerra did have a lot of really he, he made he did make good use of that of that position, you know, as a minority member. And uh, but, you know, he he did it for so long that you start. I think I mean, people, people started, started tuning to, him out. Eventually. Tuning him out, yeah. yeah. And so it's great to have some turnover and have some new voices and have some new people participating and and new issues. I'm sure they care about new things. Um, I, you know, I hope there's a hope there's an oil tax expert in the bunch. Yeah. Well, I want to. <laughs> I feel like that's all. I feel like that's just like the thing that we're just forgetting about, and you know, it's such a big part of or how our state functions. Yeah. All right. Well, hey, uh, I'll talk to you in a week or so. All right. Sounds good. See you later. All right. Bye. Bye.